We Saw a Thing is a movie podcast about remakes and sequels. We, we saw a thing and talked about it. This week, the guys watch 12 Monkeys. The following conversation has been edited for brevity. I thought you said you were recording. I, forgot. I like walked out of my booth and didn't hit record like a dummy. The shit. <laughs> Sorry, so ask your question again. Do you think it was a good idea to sit down and watch these two movies? Like right now? No, it was a terrible idea. Yeah, like right now. It was the worst idea ever. <laughs> I felt like I got PTSD watching these movies. <laughs> I don't want to talk about the pandemic for like the entire duration of this. Right. But all I kept thinking watching 12, uh, 12 Monkeys was, is this the worst case scenario? Like, like what happens if we don't stop this thing? Yeah. I don't like this. So we did two movies. We did La Jetty, which is... A really like a 28 minute almost PowerPoint presentation with voiceover. I really enjoyed it. I loved it. <laughs> it was so weird and experimental. And the whole time I was watching it, I was like, oh my God, I'm so glad that somebody expanded this story. But at the same time, I loved that it was it was so short. It it was such a huge story told in such a really cool way. It didn't need to be longer than it was. It felt very appropriate. And it, uh, I mean, it's not, it's beautiful. It's the complete opposite, I think, of 12 Monkeys. Which really got like the grimy look in, which is really cool. Like Terry Gilliam certainly has an aesthetic and he leans into it in a big, big way in 12 Monkeys. It's a very cool looking movie. But it's very cool looking in a very different way than Legetti. Is it Legetti? Legetti? I have no idea. But this movie's so cool. There is an accent in there, and I don't know how to what that means. I don't know what it means, but it's such a cool movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's subtitled because it's all in French. It's told in like still pictures for the most. Dude, except for that one moment where she looks up at the camera and blinks, and that blew my mind because I wasn't expecting it. Oh man, that. That was great. Like I, I appreciated the hell out of it. Now, that being said, going right into 12 monkeys and seeing the man get shot, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> like all of the suspense of what that means is gone. Yeah. But I also had a, I had a different realization with 12 monkeys on this watch. Cause it's a movie I've seen before. It was one of my favorite movies growing up. I, I love this movie, but I haven't seen it in probably 15 or 20 years at this point. And the thing that I took away from it, from the ending as like a kid is different than the thing that I took away from it in the ending as an adult. Well, what was the thing you took away when you were young? When I was young, I was like, oh, so this is just going to loop forever. It's just going to loop and loop and loop and loop, and it's hopeless. And what I realized as an adult is, oh, well, the woman called, what's her name, Catherine? She called the number. She's got the number. And she's the one who realized who the real bad guy was. So this isn't actually going to loop forever. She just has the ability to now call the future and be like, hey, um, screwed up. This is the guy that's targeted, so you should probably go and attack him now instead. And then the whole thing gets solved. <laughs> so, like, instead of this big, like, twisting, like, oh, man, he died and it's still going to happen, like... 
that was what my kid brain said, right? Was like, oh, the future's hopeless, right? And I thought that was really cool and dark and like gritty and whatever. And now I'm like, oh, okay. Well, there's just like this giant gaping plot hole. <laughs> so that's fine. <laughs> no, because you have to factor in the Avengers Endgame time travel paradox. Exactly. Everything that happens from here on out is just how it happens. Exactly. It's the end game time travel. <laughs> <laughs> no, here's the thing. If you're like kind of not following along, there is a massive pandemic that hits the world in these films. And it drives people underground. In in the original, it's World War Three. It's not specifically a virus. Right. Which I kind of appreciated about it because it was like it like was a little bit different than, you know, our, our current state of the world. <laughs> which is nice. Yeah, which is nice. So what they've decided is that they can in the original time travel is different as well, I feel, because in the original, because he has a focused mind and a specific memory he can focus on, he can like jump back to a time when he sees that woman again. He can learn. I don't really know why he's he's back. Like, is he learning stuff? But didn't that make you feel like the way that they shot that movie in still pictures, it was like very relevant to the storytelling? Because it definitely felt like when he was traveling back in time, he was getting these like really fast snapshots. Like it was just like I've dropped into this two second moment. And so it was almost like the still pictures that we were getting were so representative of how he was traveling backwards in time. I really appreciated that about the way they decided to film it um, because it felt very appropriate for the storytelling but what it didn't do is like he was going back in time but he was having a relationship with this woman yeah there wasn't like jumping back in time to solve the world or anything it's almost like they were just doing it to do it it's almost like they realized that his emotional connection with this woman was was strong enough that it was going to be able to pull him back in time and maybe he'd be able to like sort out some of what caused World War III, but also he got the added benefit of having this relationship. Was sort of my takeaway. It's hard to take, like, major sweeping things away from this movie because it is only 28 minutes long. (laughs) That's a good point. Now, they do dive into a brand new idea in 12 Monkeys, which is it is a pandemic. They've been driven underground. Animals now have taken back the planet. That was less clear to me on the rewatch because that was my takeaway originally, and that's how I had remembered it. Because the 12 monkeys release all the animals from the zoo, I sort of got the impression that the animals hadn't really taken over. It's just that they'd learned to live within the city after they'd been released from the zoo. So that's why there's a bear inside of New York City or wherever it is. A hundred percent. Like, I think the the ideas that are going on... It, it, are ideas that come to them because they've lived underground for so long and don't really remember that the 12 monkeys released it. They think the 12 monkeys, the army of the 12 monkeys, who is a animal protection protest group who are radicals. They think they're the ones who did the virus, but it's not that at all. They're just looking to, bust everybody out of a zoo. This movie was way too relevant right now because all of that felt just like the fake news cycle and blame mongering and cancel culture and like the whole thing. It was just, it felt very, very obnoxiously overly relevant and it gave, it made me very anxious. <laughs> I I had a lot of anxiety watching this, uh, watching 12 Anger, uh, I keep going to 12 Anger Men. It is 12 monkeys, 12 monkeys, 12 monkeys. And I had I had a lot of anxiety uh, watching Twelve Monkeys, 
mostly because of the aesthetic, the tone, and the manic nature of Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt is great in this movie. Really good. He was scene stealing. I felt bad for Bruce Willis having to act against him because Brad Pitt was so freaking good. Brad Pitt is... There's like a way to play crazy. And I have gone on the record saying that I do not, I'm not a big fan of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. When I watch that film, I feel like people are just there to act crazy, read lines as crazy as you can. Brad Pitt seems to have gone deep into himself to get as wild and loose as he can and just explode with this manic energy that is terrifying because you don't know what he's going to do. At some points you think he's going to be violent at others. He's, he's passive, but you never know what's coming next with him. Factor in these weird eye lenses that he wears that make him look so much scarier than he should. It's fascinating. After watching this and now having seen Joker and, you know, Joaquin Phoenix's interpretation and Jared Leto's interpretation and Heath Ledger's interpretation of that character, I would really like to see what Brad Pitt would do with a character like the Joker or even the Riddler. I think the kind of energy he brought to this character in 12 Monkeys, just sort of transpose it into somebody like the Riddler. And I would be so interested to see what that would look like. I'm with you. I, But here's the thing. Like, I don't know if he's still got that in him. What we've seen from him recently is not that. Like, he plays the, the calm, quiet man. Maybe the craziest we've seen is from him in the ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when the Manson family breaks in and he's totally on drugs and is just like laughing at them. And that might be the only thing left he, he had after 12 Monkeys. I... Because he looks like a lunatic. He's got a bit of that manic energy inside of, like, Moneyball. And he's got a little bit of that, like, chaos inside of Ocean's Eleven once in a while, right? Like, there's just... Every now and again, he plays a character that's just got a little extra something behind their eyes that just makes you wonder if they're all there. I think Snatch, he's he's kind of a little bit wild as well. Yes, thank you. It was Snatch. And also a little bit in Fight Club, too, right? Like, he's definitely got... a bit of that and at the end of seven like he's a little unhinged there right like he definitely knows how to flirt with that line and in 12 monkeys he didn't flirt with that line he just walked right over it and looked like he had a blast doing it he is genuinely a fantastic actor he really is and like for a guy who's very often pointed to as being just like really handsome and not much else you look at his imdb page and like it's full of pretty good performances like i've enjoyed him in a lot uh, like, I certainly enjoyed him when he when he popped onto Friends for that one episode. That was super fun. I think he's great in the Oceans films. He's always eating, and he's always got this, like, cocky smile. I think he's super charming in those. Mr. and Mrs. Smith was, like, a bad movie, objectively, but he's super fun in it. Inglorious Bastards. He was crazy in that movie. He was super fun in that movie. Burn After Reading as the... Uh, the- the obsessed gym rat yeah. who is just so dumb. I don't think the guy gets enough credit for his acting ability. I mean, certainly he was great in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I thought he was better in Ad Astra, which, like, is an incredibly boring movie. But he, And he's also not afraid to just jump into films like Deadpool 2. Yes. Or 
show up in a, in a Jimmy Kimmel sketch as just some random guy. Like he seems to be to me that he's on this amazing journey of acting, but he's okay of just like having fun too. Yeah. And I appreciate that about actors, right? Like Matt Damon seems to do similar stuff like that, right? Like he's always showing up and stuff and just looking like he's having a blast. I like that. I like actors who just, they really genuinely look like they're just enjoying their job. Emma Stone comes to mind. She's constantly doing stuff like that. Because it's fun watching people have fun with their jobs. It's fun. I agree. I, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. I think that Bruce Willis is, I don't know, like he's not phoning it in, but up against Brad Pitt, like up your game, buddy. And maybe he doesn't have an upper game. Like, Bruce Willis is pretty much always Bruce Willis. Yeah, I mean, even against Madeline Stowe, who played Catherine, like, she was fine. Like, she was pretty good. And that was really the only other actor that he was acting up against pretty regularly in this movie outside of Brad Pitt. Madeline Stowe brought a lot of realism to being kidnapped yeah. in a way that it, it genuinely looked terrifying for her. Mm-hmm. She looked like she was nervous around him. And, and I guess like the weird times we got with Bruce Willis were really like when he was sticking the head out the window and laughing and yeah. I love this air and that sort of thing. Like it still felt just like Bruce Willis is doing that. And maybe that's the problem with Bruce Willis. You always just think like, well, that's just Bruce Willis doing Bruce Willis. Like, You never see him in a role. That's where I feel like M. Night Shyamalan brought something interesting out of Bruce Willis as an actor because he's so understated in the Shyamalan movies, especially like Unbreakable, which is still one of my favorite movies. And I think Bruce Willis is fantastic in that movie and The Sixth Sense as well. There's just like this quiet energy to him. And when he hits that zone, I really enjoy him and stuff. But when he's having to be more than that, then I'd rather just see him in like a crazy action movie where like the acting isn't super important. Like just give me another diehard. That's fine. I enjoy him and stuff like that too. He's not this really impressive actor. They unfortunately put him in positions where he was acting directly up against people who were just killing it. And so it made his difference in acting ability just so much more stark in this movie. And I mean, that also could be that he's never had to be challenged as an actor because the the roles keep coming. But also maybe this was one of the first movies where he would have had to been challenged by an act as an actor. Like, let's look through his IMDb. Right. So he was in Pulp Fiction before and he was fine in Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah. No, he's fun in Pulp Fiction. But I'm just saying, like, he's still Bruce Willis in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, for sure. Like, I never I never see Bruce Willis and go like, oh, yeah, you're somebody else. Right. Whereas even DiCaprio, who I I struggle sometimes to like not see the DiCaprio isms in Django Unchained, he does disappear into that role. Uh, you know, Brad Pitt disappears into this role. Yeah. When I'm watching a really good film, which I I think 12 Monkeys is a good film. Me, me too, I'm not yeah. going to say it's like my favorite, but I, I and I liked La Jetty more. Agreed. But they're just to- totally different things. I mean, I'm looking through Bruce Willis's IMDb here and like there's some really great movies on this list. The Fifth Element jumps right out. Uh, Lucky Number Slevin. That's a fun movie. Totally forgot he was in that. He does a lot of fun, fun movies. You know what? Like when he's playing it funny, like in the whole nine yards, that's that's I, I like him when he's funny, like the last Boy Scout. He's. An action star, but he's also really funny as an action star. Yeah, he was good in Looper. Oh, yeah. He's great in Looper. 
I mean, he's coming back to kill himself, and that's always exciting. Yeah. Ugh, God, I need to go back and rewatch that movie. The The Last Jedi really messed me up as far as Ryan Johnson goes. <laughs> Stop saying it. You watch <laughs> Knives Out afterwards. You know the guy's talented. Dude, I really like Ryan Johnson. I keep coming back to The Last Jedi and thinking, if he'd done an original Star Wars property with characters that I didn't already know and love, I really still hope he does his own Star Wars trilogy thing that was rumored a few years ago. I still hope that that happens because the guy's so talented. He's such a great storyteller. The characters that he introduces me to, I'm into. I just didn't like what he did with characters I already knew and loved. But now we're just talking about Star Wars and Bruce Willis, (laughs) which is exactly what we did in the last episode. We're talking about the witches, and we ended up talking about Harry Potter for a while. (laughs) I know. We got to stop this. We got to focus. Sure. 12 monkeys. 12 monkeys. Uh, Man, this made me want to go and watch more Terry Gilliam. See, I didn't like 12 monkeys growing up. We sort of talked about this a little bit. I don't like real dark and gritty. Right. This is real dark and gritty. It certainly is. And- I had to wait. I had to wait till I appreciated it to watch it again. And now I'm like, okay, I really like it. I like the all the practical crazy sets you've built. Oh, and the Dutch camera angles everywhere. Thank you. Oh, I meant to ask you about that because I knew that that was called something and I couldn't remember Dutch angles. Thank you. He used those really effectively. Yeah, they were like everywhere in the future. Not as much in the past. In the past, it felt more like this is a reality that people can relate to, so maybe we don't use it as much. See, it made me think of the first Thor movie because that movie used Dutch angles a lot too. But in that movie, I felt like they were using it as like a framing technique. Like it just didn't land. Those angles felt meaningless in that movie. And I feel like Dutch angles are really hard to pull off well, but... Terry Gilliam nailed it in 12 Monkeys, and I think part of that is his use of wide-angle lenses, which really adds to something and I think is difficult to do, Like especially when you're trying to create a tense atmosphere. I find the use of wide-angle lenses really ballsy. Mr. Robot is a great example of uh, like a TV series that has like a very dark, gritty pace to it. It's very claustrophobic, that series. And so their use of... Wide-angle lenses in Mr. Robot felt very counterintuitive to me, but it was used so effectively to create space and to create this sort of like ominous vibe to the whole thing. And so Terry Gilliam's use of wide angles and the Dutch the Dutch angles kind of like really reminded me of how much I love when a competent director and a competent cinematographer use those kinds of techniques in a way that um, helps the storytelling. And he really is trying to say something in this film about mental illness at a time when people aren't talking about mental illness. This is a film where a time traveler comes back in time, tells everybody he's a time traveler, ends up in prison, which is actually a an asylum. They have to kind of crack him or try and figure out what's going on. Well, they sent him back to the wrong time the first time. Then they send him back to the right time And he has to kidnap the woman who helped him in the original timeline so that he can try to convince her, and he can't. But there's also, like, really interesting moments of uh, the time travel just not working, and he ends up in World War I and gets a bullet in him from World War I. So that adds a layer of authenticity. She now finds him a little more credible because, one, they found a bullet in him from so long ago, and two... 
there is now a photo of when he was there in this new timeline where he's jumping all over the place. Yeah. There's a moment early in the film when he's in the mental institution and she's talking to the other doctors and she's saying how, I don't know, he seems really familiar. And I thought that they were going to do another one of those jumps like they did in Legetti where like... It really seemed like in the French version that he was jumping around all over the place. And so, like, I had this picture in my head of, like, her living through her life and just having him show up at random points throughout her life and then just disappear. And how, like, weirdly chaotic that would be, but also her sense of time being linear and him jumping through at different points would be completely different than his sense of time being linear and jumping through at different points because he's meeting her maybe not in the order of her getting older and walking through time in a linear fashion. So certainly some of the times it seemed like he jumped back and she didn't really know him as well. You know, she seemed to know him pretty well early in some of the jumps where he hadn't really interacted with her before. So, like, it really got the sense that, like, they were living through that timeline in a completely different way. And I don't think that they did that as well in 12 Monkeys because when she's saying things like, I don't know, he seems really familiar, it would have been really cool if in in one of those jumps that didn't work, if one of those was that he like stumbled across her in like college or something like that. So like there was an interaction previous so that when she's saying those things, then later on in the movie, you see what she's talking about, which would have been really cool. And also like extra timey-wimey and and weird. Um, and they didn't really ever do that in 12 Monkeys in a way that I thought Legetti kind of poked at. I mean, it, it was certainly that because it would have been more interesting to see how many more blips through time he took. But they were really laser-focused on the army of the 12 Monkeys and what does it mean. But then there was the, you know, that they could play with the fact that this man had been in this timeline before. He was a child in this timeline. And the the thing that really brought it home was the story of the boy hiding in the barn that everyone thought went down the well. And he was like, oh, you know, uh, that was the first time I realized, like, disappointment and fear for another person. Like, it was the first time I can remember really being scared for a kid. And then it was nothing, and it, I was disappointed. It's really played up, but it's almost throwaway for him but the rest of the story really really pushes that to make madeline so really realize hey he's not full of shit i do not recommend you watching legetti before you watch this film the way that we did only because i that beginning of the film of 12 monkeys I knew he was going to die. So, yeah, yeah, we don't recommend that you watch Legetti before 12 Monkeys, but also we don't recommend that you listen this far into our podcast before watching either of them. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. I mean, if you haven't learned so far that we have spoilers all the way through and we say nothing, we do not tell you warnings at all. What are you doing? Oh, my God. Well, you know what? We should put in a spoiler warning. By the way, people die in this movie. Okay, here's what we should do. We should record a little spoiler warning right now that I can clip out of this recording and put at the very beginning of the episode. I will not do this. You know what? There are spoilers in here, people. Get to know our podcast. We went on a tirade about werewolf sex. In Dracula. If you thought we weren't going to spoil the endings to stuff, 
we spoiled everything about that movie. Oh, yeah. But we both, I would say we both recommend checking these movies out. They're pretty good. I I think I like Legetti a, a lot more. And probably because it's not hopeful, but it's more beautiful and uplifting. What, what he's going back in time for is really her. Yeah. And that is lovely. Whereas when the love story happens in 12 Monkeys, I'm just like, this is a stretch. There's been a few movies in in my adult life that have like affected me emotionally because of the way they've decided to tell the story. Like I'm thinking of Into the Spider-Verse. That was like very visually arresting, but it was in service of the story. Legetti is now in my head is this like really unique story told in a really unique way. It's so counterintuitive to tell me a story in still images as a movie. But I loved it. I was so drawn in and it's so beautifully shot. I just wanted to be watching more of it. I wanted it to be longer. I wanted there to be a sequel. I wanted more of these characters and this storytelling. But then as it ended, I realized that it's so perfect the way that it is. It's easily one of the most unique and interesting movie watching experiences I've had in a really long time. I am 100% with you. I didn't know what to expect from Legetti, but what I got, I was happy I got. Yeah, that's a movie I've been wanting to watch for a while. I didn't realize that 12 Monkeys was based on anything. And years ago, I was like just looking for like unique stuff to watch. Uh, Jay, you had started a um, a movie club years ago, you know, like a book club, but for movies. And it was this really cool group of people who would get together once a month to talk about movies. I was hunting for something kind of unique to propose to the group to watch. And I stumbled across the jetty, having no idea that it was linked in with 12 Monkeys at all until I'd found it. And then it's just kind of been on my mind ever since as a movie that I'd really like to watch. So I'm so glad we did it for this podcast because, like, I'm really happy I saw it. It was such a cool thing. Even though this is, like, the absolute wrong time to watch 12 Monkeys. Oh, yeah. Terrible time to watch 12 Monkeys. (laughs) (laughs) It is literally about germs in the air, living underground, animals are fine and flourishing, but humanity has taken a massive hit. Man, okay, like we should, full disclosure, we're recording this episode on November 13th, so it doesn't come out for a little bit. But like if the state of the world when this episode is released is what it is currently or is worse as, you know, is projected by at least some of the I'm living in Vancouver in B.C. And there were some numbers that <laughs> some models that were proposed about where we're headed as a province with COVID and it's super depressing. So. Hey, I live in Ontario and <sighs> Toronto and I got to say like in your two weeks, you'll be where I am. And in my two weeks, we're going to be insane. So like definitely 12 monkeys sort of added to the, the overall anxiety I'm feeling about our current global pandemic and sort of where we are as far as like you and me specifically. Chris, you are my past (laughs) and I am your future, sir. I want to tell you what it's like in the future. In the future, things are hairy. Also, I'm three hours ahead of you. So I am in the future, buddy. Guess what? Guess what happens at 6.15 today? I record a podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
Oh my God, that's three hours from now. Exactly. <laughs> what will you be doing? Don't know. Don't know, but I'm recording a podcast in your future. So does that mean that you're the Bruce Willis to my Brad Pitt? Is that what this friendship is? I, I mean, if you go back and listen to this podcast, I would say yes. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> Next time on We Saw a Thing. All right, we're getting into the holiday spirit with one of Jay's favorite Christmas movies, which is the third in a stoner comedy trilogy. Whoever thought this series would get two sequels when the first one was released back in 2004. Join us on December 10th for Harold and Kumar. We Saw a Thing is hosted by Jay Kennedy and Chris Shapcott. Produced by Shapcott's Media. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our show notes for links to our social media and credits. And leave a review on Apple Podcasts.